so here we are. I think most of you know uh, by now that we are in this season of going through the book of Ephesians. And we find ourselves this morning um, what I'm going to call the end of the beginning. So the first three chapters of Paul's letter, are they begin with Paul having this wonderful revelation of God's grace, God's goodness, God's kindness, God's plans for the church. And then next week, Stephen will be starting on chapter 4, and it gets a little bit more practical. And, and right at the beginning, I'm not stealing his lines, but, but he, he talks about having a walk, having a lifestyle that is worthy of the Lord Jesus. And, and Steve will uh, take us into that. But uh, we're focusing this morning on chapter 3 and verse 14. Uh, through to 21 and is it up yes it's up and uh, there in the message we've got we've got another this is the second great inspirational prayer that that Paul gives during this this burst of of revelation about God's goodness and kindness to the church so let's um, let's read it together then my response let's all read my response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength, that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him, that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all Christians the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth, test its length, plumb the depths, rise to the heights. And a bit more. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything, you know. Far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, his spirit deeply and gently within us. Glory to God in the church. bit more? No? Glory to God in the church. Lovely. Thank you. Well, I, I would have written a bit more. Um, but uh, there we are. So... Uh, at one level, we've got this lovely prayer, and, 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 and I'm not being sarcastic. We could say, well, those words are just beautiful, they're poetic, and, and we could say, that's, that's really nice. It's kind, it's, it's, it's encouraging, uh, and we stay there. Um, but, but Paul... In the, in the different versions, uses a phrase that he, he, for the third time here. And uh, he does it in, um, in chapter 3, verse 1. And he does it also in, um, in chapter 1, verse 15. And the phrase that he uses is, for this reason. For this reason. And, and me being me, I, I want to know... What's the reason? And, uh, and, and that's what we're going to focus on a little bit 
this morning for what has God got planned? What is his reasoning that he brings us into this place of prayer? That it's a nice prayer. So, so two parts to what I'm going to say this morning. The first part is what has Paul seen to cause him to have a reason to pray for us the way he does? In chapter 2, verse 1, um, version by a guy called Tom Wright, former Bishop of Durham and a great theologian. He write, he's done a translation. And, and he has this question, verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, so where do you come into all this? Where do you fit in? So, so you know me well enough by now that, that I, I want to talk about the glory of God, of Jesus and the church. Um, but I'm going to get upfront and personal and say, now, how does this apply to me? Because uh, you're, as you're going to discover in, in a few moments time, you are not an audience. You're not even a congregation. You haven't gone out to a gig. I'm not standing on the terraces. We're in the game. So what does it mean to us? And, and Rachel last week would have picked up in those latter parts of, uh, of, of two and three that Paul, Paul introduces us to this phrase, mystery. And, and, and it's, it's, of course, we've got our understanding of the word mystery. And, and in the Greek, it's, she, she may have well said this, it's, the word is mysterion. And, and it actually means a, a secret that is not known by those out there who don't know God and Christ. I haven't got the Bible, haven't got the Holy Spirit. But it, we do know it. And he's saying, you lot are in the know. And, uh, and this is what he's saying to us. And, and in essence, in this passage that we've been looking at, he, he, he talks about two mysteries, two bits of information that, that he says, you are privileged to be in the know and, and it will affect your lives. Mystery one actually isn't much of, of a secret to us. Because, but it was to them in that culture, in that day. And that is that we of us in the church in the 21st century understand, and, and, and uh, Rachel probably did this, chapter 3, verse 6, she, she, he says, this mystery, this secret revealed to us is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs, that means foreigners, non-Jews, that all people are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. Up to this time, the Jews believed they were exclusively God's people. They got God for themselves, and God really wasn't the God of the rest of them. And Paul brings this mind-blowing, shattering view to the Jewish Christians who were in Ephesus and all over Asia Minor as the church grew, that actually the gospel of Christ was not purifying Judaism, was not the next leg of the Jews' encounter with God, but actually was fulfilling all that, but doing even more, spreading it to the whole of humankind. And of course, here we are today in the 21st century, and we, 
We know that. We, 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 we go to Ghana. We go to Bulgaria. We, we've got missions. We've got friends. That, and we understand the theological language of the universal church. The church, timeless and, and in full context of time and space. Mystery number two, uh, and this is where we're going to focus, is a little bit more challenging. And, and it needs to come home to roost here. And, and this is all summed up with, with a very simple question. Who are we? Uh, and, and you may have an answer. And they're probably all, well, we're Christians. Uh, we're the church. We're Eagle's Nest. We're NG. Uh, we're AOG, we're, and we've got all kinds of labels that help us identify who we are. But Paul here gets through all that and actually penetrates of how God sees us and how we should see ourselves. And the message, chapter 2, verse 15, the message brings us this very interesting statement he says in Christ you are you listening you are a new kind of human being you are a new kind of human being now I don't know whether that excites you I don't know whether it perplexes you I don't know whether it spooks you um, but God says that through Christ, when you've received him, you become different. You've not just got a tag of salvation. You've just not got a number on your forehead that permits you to come into church and get to heaven when you die. He says, no, when you receive Christ, you became a new form of humanity. And we need this bit. Remember a few weeks ago, Ben talked about blind spots. Right at the beginning, I talked about the penny needing to drop. This, this thing called revelation that actually we need the Holy Spirit to help us see that we're not just saved. We're not just followers of Jesus, but supernaturally God has some, done something remarkable in our lives. Now, Paul then uses a theme that was incredibly common to his listeners and his readers in, in first century Ephesus, uh, both to the, the indigenous Ephesian people and to the Jewish Christians that were there as well. And, and it's not particularly familiar to us, but this is the journey that Paul wants to take us on. And the theme is, is that the focus of what God is trying to say to us is focusing on a temple. You weren't expecting that, were you? A temple. And, and here we find what, what uh, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. So he starts off this. This is the NIV. 
Consequently, it's, it's, it's like for this reason. Consequently, because of what God has done for us and because of the mystery that has been revealed that we're all one in Christ. It's consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, that's the Jews and Gentiles, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built, he's using an analogy here, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling, a temple in which God lives by his spirit. Now, the language of buildings is, is, is familiar in, in, in analogy in the New Testament. And Paul harnesses it on it here. Now, now, why do I say that's a bit harder for us, but very easy for them? So, number one, for the Gentile Christians and, and his audience that lived in Ephesus, Paul's analogy of a temple would have been staggering and, 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 and hugely impacting their culture and their beliefs. Because the very epicenter of Ephesus was a temple. The temple of Artemis. And, and it was an enormous building. Today, you know, the, the, we, the archaeologists have got footprints of, of various temples... But probably the biggest remaining structure that we can get a physical idea of is the Parthenon standing on the Acropolis in Athens. And it's pretty impressive if you've seen pictures of that. The temple of Artemis was four times bigger than the Parthenon. It was huge. It was believed to be... And and there's little evidence to, to dispute it, the biggest temple, the biggest building given over to worship in the world. Now, also we've got to understand that this temple and this cult, this worship, absolutely controlled everything about the life of the people who lived in Ephesus. It was, it was the center of life and of culture. It was the center of their commercial world. It had, it had a bit of a, a, another name, the Temple of Artemis. It was called the Bank of Asia. It literally had its own mint and, print and, and coined uh, uh, currency that was accepted throughout the whole of Asia. And, 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 and businesses were concluded around it. It's called the Banking House of Asia. It was the center of all social life. All activities that, that took place, took place under the name of Artemis. So people gathered. There was libations, and that's worship. There were ceremonies. The whole thing took over them. It was the center, uh, uh, as I say, of their social. It was the center of their economic life. 
that the whole of, of, of Ephesus was built around the worship, but, but a massive tourism trade. When you read into Acts, you'll hear of this guy, Demetrius, who, who, who throws a big wobbly because Paul comes in and people are starting to come to Jesus and stop buying their little trinkets of, of Artemis of Di, or Diana, as she was known in the Roman world, and, and, and trade the whole thing utterly utterly controlled their culture and of course last but not least even more importantly spiritually it was the center as Ben pointed out a few weeks ago of, a, of an awful demonic cultish uh, uh, religion that, that had its roots in the demonic and Ben and I I guess we'd love to have a bit of a chat about what that impact had on community and, and, a, and a serious question is that spirit that operated in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, still in operation in the world today. And I would like to suggest to you that it's very much alive in our society right now. But that's a bit of an intrigue. I will talk about that if you want another time. So into this culture, Paul speaks about God building a temple. When these Ephesians people understood there was this massive temple dominating and temple activity that, that dominated their lives. And, uh, and in this prayer, there's no doubt about what Paul was doing here. In this prayer that we've read, Paul, 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 Paul talks about, uh, again, about foundations, about rooted foundations established. And, and he talks about the love of God, and he gives it in terms of dimensions. What he's saying to them, he says, the, 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 the love of God, it's taller than the temple of Artemis. It's longer than Artemis. It's wider. He's, he's using dimensions here in direct comparison to this great cult worship center. And he's talking about the Gentiles the Ephesian Christians and the Jewish Christians embracing what God is doing here. Now, so that's just a quick summary of, of what it meant to the Ephesian people. What did it mean to the Jews? Because the Jews had a very different idea of a temple, but again, it was about a building. They believed it was from them, and the followers of the law and the prophets, they, clearly, they had a clear understanding it was an incomplete understanding, but they had an understanding of a biblical temple. And, and for them, they did get half the truth. Because the temple that they believed in, it, they, there's a phrase that's used consistently throughout the Bible. And it's, it's where heaven meets earth. Where heaven meets earth. Where God meets with man. So here's a very, very quick summary of, of, of Old Testament evidence towards this Jewish view of the temple. So where does it begin? Well, it begins in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is the place where heaven and earth come together. It's where God and mankind communicate together. It was astonishing. It was glorious. And if you ask me the question, what's it going to be like when Jesus comes again? Uh, the nearest I can tell you, it's going to be like the Garden of Eden, only better. That, that's, that's all I know. And, you know, if you want to sit in a cloud 
strumming a harp, singing Kumbaya. Well, that's good for you, but I'm not going to be with you. I'm I'm going to be in a glorified body like Adam and Eve. I'm going to live in a fantastic world, which I'll understand fully, the animal creation, the veggie, and the whole thing, and it will be all for the glory of God and a fantastic life. And that's where it began in the Garden of Eden. Heaven and earth, God and man together. And then, of course, we know what happens. Sin comes. There's a separation. God has been, man distances himself from God. God, the, uh, Eden, Eden has to be uh, left and, and, and trouble comes. And then God comes with this rescue plan and he meets a guy called Abraham and he says, I'm going to restore it all and you're going to be the father of nations and this sort of thing. And then we find Jacob. And Jacob's interesting because he's a grandson of Abraham and Jacob's got a funny name. He means cheat, he means liar, he means, he means con man. And uh, so he's, he's not a goodie, even though he's a descendant of Abraham. And, and God chooses him because God likes naughty people. Uh, they're called sinners. And, and he chooses him and he meets him. And, and in Genesis 18, we find this amazing story that, that Jacob meets with God. And what, does he, what happens when Jacob meets with God? He sees a ladder and, he, and his literal language is, heaven has come down to earth. And earth has gone to heaven. And, and, and Jacob says, in his, in his godless state, in his sinful state, he says, wow, I've just met with God. And I didn't know it. And he calls it Bethel, which roughly translates, means the house, the home, the habitation of God. So Jacob gets, gets an idea, surely God is in this place. And then a few centuries down the road, we find David. And David is a picture of Jesus and restoring the, the covenant and the promise. And David, having had amazing military success and God bless him, says, Oh God, I want to build a temple. I want a place where you can be worshipped physically. And God says, you can't do it. And Solomon does it. And and Solomon builds this enormous, fantastic temple, which was the glory of Israel right until the day of Jesus. They lamented that former temple. And in the middle of all this, with this amazing structure full of gold and, and, and extravagant build, Solomon prays at its dedication because he was a man of revelation. And he says, look, I can see all this fantastic building. You Ephesians, you can see this fantastic building. But, but Solomon gets to the root of it. And he says, will God really dwell on earth? Is this building good enough for God to be with us? That's a good question. And he, 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 he was reaching. He, he couldn't see it clearly, but he was reaching, saying, Oh, God, even though this structure is the best we can do, it is utterly magnificent. Actually, what you're doing in my spirit is bigger than a building. And, and he's got that intrigue about it. And so it goes on. And then finally we get to Jesus, and Jesus comes. <laughs> and you'll be familiar with this bit. And Jesus, who's Jesus? He's, Jesus is Emmanuel. And he, cleared, he declares himself that he's not just another prophet bringing a message. Oh, please forgive me if this offends you. He's not just a saviour. 
to help us go to heaven. He's God come to man. Heaven has come to earth. And, and, and we don't grasp this because it's just entered into our culture, a part of our Christian poetry, that the disciples say, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Father, in heaven, we want to know you to an extreme that we can truly worship you. Your kingdom, your glory of heaven, may it come on earth as it is in heaven. He's praying what Solomon prayed. He's praying what Jacob experienced. He's praying what Adam and Eve had in the God of Eden. He's actually saying, God, establish your presence on earth. It's, it's, not, it's not, Lord, Lord, you can, you can make money in heaven, so make money for me on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we use this as a bargaining chip that, well, God, now it is true, God can do anything, and what he can do in heaven, he can do on earth. But that's not the meaning of Jesus' prayer. Jesus' prayer is, God, will you come in a way that you've never come before and bring heaven to earth and bring God to man. That's what he's praying. And, and, and this was a bit of a shock to the Jews because Paul was now saying, it's not Solomon's temple. It's not the synagogue. It's not Josiah's temple. And of course, they were so upset because invading nations kept knocking down the temple. And here we are in the day that we're living in and the massive entity of what's happening in Palestine right now, if you get to the roots of the culture, it's a dispute over the temple ground in Jerusalem. The Jews believe it's theirs and they won't move from the West Bank. And the Palestinians believe it's theirs, and God help us. But he's saying to them, it's not physical. This is the big mystery that, that Paul is saying. It's not a physical building. And then he really drops it. He says, of all the magnificence of the Garden of Eden, of all the amazing experience that Jacob had, of having a vision of seeing heaven coming down to earth, of, of the glory and the splendor. My God, I'd love to see the Temple of Solomon. Uh, you know, all the gold, all the brilliance, all the genius of it. I'd love to see it. Boom, boom, boom. It's not that, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. I've got a bombshell. It's you. It's you. It's you. And... I want to swear. I want to say the kind of equivalent language, flipping heck. Me. But, but I, I'm, you know, I'm 75. I'm, 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 I'm getting on to be older. That's all I'm conceding. And now he says, no, it's you. He says, 
I want to bring my glory on earth through you. And all of a sudden, whether I sit in a chair in Red Hill ain't too important. Whether I call myself a Pentecostal or a charismatic or whatever, whatever, ain't too important. Who my parents were and what kind of a upbringing I had ain't too important. All that God is doing is mugging me by the Holy Spirit saying, listen, sunshine, will you get the message? I want to put my glorious presence in you and declare my glory to the world through you. Now we've got a credibility gap here because this is where I'm taking you to boundaries where you don't want to go. And I don't want to go because it's all too much for me. And that's the second where we come to this glorious prayer where I'm going to finish. Because part two is, well, how does it work? And the first thing we've got to do is the most simplest thing, is, is the shock and the penetration of what I've said to you, building up from how the Gentiles saw a temple, how the Jews saw a temple, and how God sees us as the temple, is we've got to believe it. That's the first thing. And I, and I need the Holy Spirit to help me believe it, accept it as truth. And then... Secondly, allow the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to change me from within so that my life actually does contain the presence and the glory of Jesus. And he does two things in this prayer. He empowers us for change and he envelops us with a supernatural overwhelming sense of well-being through his love and the devil hates both so we can preach for decades and decades that God loves people and my my evidence and my testimony is that it's an incredibly difficult truth for people to accept oh they can nod in church they can sing the songs that says God loves me, but when they look into the mirror of their souls when they're on their own do you really believe that you are passionately, unconditionally, overwhelmingly loved by God? And that God has got a phenomenal, wonderful life for you now and forever. And I'm on that journey. I believe it more now than I've ever believed it in my life. And I need a little bit more help. I need a little bit more assurance because I know what a stinker I am. I know the number of times I've let Jesus down and I had a good upbringing and I had a good start. And you know your story better than anybody else, but the Holy Spirit needs to do this bit of saying, you loved us. So here's two essentials. Five minutes I've done. We need both power to change and power to receive. You see, and this is, this is the challenge for church life. 
power without love, if I use the word power, I mean talent, ability, charisma, qualities, styles, regimes, programs, all that stuff that is all about getting stuff done. And we all need it. Power without love, uh, even Holy Spirit power, produces fear. It produces control. It produces resentment. The more authoritative a leader becomes, there's something in me that wants to say, get knotted. Even if I agree with them. Uh, there's just something. Uh, hang on, hang on. You, you just, you, you know, you know. Remember, I preached a few years ago, uh, weeks ago, months ago. Get there. You know about personal space. You know, don't invade my personal space. And whoa, here we are again. Uh, okay, no, look. It, it, just, just keep your distance, because that's that kind of thing. The result is limited success, because church can be built by talent to a certain level. But ultimately, it fails because it relies on humanity and charisma. And power without love is unproductive. Now, here's something. I'm not sure you're going to like this. Love without power is equally futile. It's all about love. No, it's not. The essence of God's love is that he puts within us, Ben teaches this from different sessions many times, that dealing with the Holy Spirit, that in receiving Christ's love through the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives us the ability to change. It's not good enough just to say God's love covers anything and you carry on the same. I can live this kind of lifestyle and it's all right because God loves me. John's, uh, he's not here. I, I, we ought to register, if you've not already done, our appreciation for the series that John's done on these few Wednesday evenings because he's put hours and hours of phenomenal work and he's paid to do that, but we honor him. And part of his message is that, that our attitude towards people of a different sexual orientation must be accepting and loving. That bit we all get. But he's made it also clear that loving and welcoming does not deny the power of the gospel to change people's minds and lives. And love without power is sentimental. Ultimately, it's purposeless. Ultimately, it's hopelessness because it gives no people any change that hope that things change. It produces derision. We're laughed at. And ultimately... It's ineffectual. That's the reality of what Paul is saying in this prayer to build this magnificent temple of God. He's saying, 
you are to be. The indwelling recipients of the presence of King Jesus in his power to change you by demonstrating his love to others and giving them hope and demonstrating there is a different kind of life. You are a different kind of human being. Remember at the beginning? We are a different kind of community. It affects my choices. It's not my job to tell you what to think, where to go, not being rude, what to eat, what to drink, what car you drive, what house you live in. But I need you to know that you will never be the person that God wants you to be unless you say to Jesus Christ, Lord, in loving me and filling me with grace to live as I live, do you want to change me? Because I give you the right to put into my life the power to be a different human being. <laughs> I, and, 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 I'm, and I'm confused because there's a bit of me and I'm preaching so I've got it. Oh, Jesus, I'm really up for this. I'm excited about the church. I'm excited about Jesus. I'm excited about the kingdom of God coming. We're not a rump. We're not an insignificant little ragbag of weird people in the corner of Nottingham. We are the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. And I'm part of it. And here I am. I'm, oh God, I'm pooing myself. I really don't need this kind of challenge even though it's filled with love. And I've got a choice to make. And so my choice is to say amen to the prayer. I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen me with power through his spirit in my inner being so that Christ may dwell in my heart through faith and I pray that I being rooted and established in love may have power together with all my friends in eagle's nest to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that I may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God and then to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we I ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within me to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever amen God bless